Good morning, everyone. They're waving. I think they want us to wave goodbye. Bye, friends. Hey, before we get started, I don't know if you guys noticed what I noticed, but uh, Christian Baker was playing the five-string guitar up here. That was impressive. <laughs> and then, like a, like a U2 concert, out of nowhere comes Rochelle with a fresh guitar. That was amazing, too. You know, we got our, our, each other's backs here at Bridge, and uh, I'm glad to be part of it. Uh, how many of you are feeling like you're just riding the wave from Jubilee last week? Anybody feel like you just took like a six-hour nap because you had so much good meat in your belly? I was next to Danny when the, the smoked brisket came, and it was. It was like a from heaven on high, like right in front of you, a fresh brisket. So um, I, um, I'm excited this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series called The Summer and the Psalms. Uh, we're looking at the Psalms of Ascents, and if you haven't been with us uh, for the last handful of weeks, the Psalms of Ascents are, are pretty cool. They're these songs at their core. It's like the hymnal of the Hebrew people. And and they're these songs that they sing as they go up to Jerusalem for these uh, three main festivals. Have you ever noticed that the the Jewish people are partying a lot? (laughs) Phyllis, is that true that they party a lot? Um, By the way, Phyllis is right over here. I sat next to her and I was expecting like a hug. And she said, you better keep me in line because Ruth Ann's not here to keep an eye on me. So (laughs) if anything goes sideways, it's probably on Phyllis this morning. And so the Psalms of Ascents are these songs that that the people would gather on their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, and they would sing these songs together, and it was this collective voice of going up, it's this expectation of this joy. And this morning we're going to come to Psalm 123. In Psalm 123, I I was telling somebody um, earlier this week, I had this problem where I, I printed out Psalm 123. And I started to study it, and then when I was done, I flipped the page to do the rest, and I realized there wasn't a rest, that uh, maybe I had made a mistake. So I flipped open my Bible, and sure enough, four verses, four verses. So I'm proud to tell you that um, in a total act of hard work and determination, I I did squeeze a 90-minute sermon out of it. So you guys are in. (laughs) So the Psalms of Ascents. Let's just talk really quickly about what these are all about. In uh, the book of Exodus, there's uh, kind of a law that requires all Jewish men to uh, attend the three major festivals in Jerusalem. And it turns out that uh, history tells us it's not just the men. The women and the children start going up too. And it becomes like this, this annual feasting where people would gather and they would prepare ahead of time. The first feast is one that many of you are familiar with. It's called the Passover. And I love this about Passover. I learned that this week, that Passover was the time in Jewish households where your house was cleaner than at any other time in the entire year. Phyllis is nodding. Is anybody else Jewish in here just for an authoritative figure I can look to? Perfect. And so it was like this spring cleaning where everything was fresh, everything was clean. There was anticipation you were going to have guests over and you wanted to, to prepare your best before the Lord. And people would gather and they would prepare and they would head to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And this feast, of course, is commemorating the blood of the Lamb over the doorposts. It's God's deliverance of his people. And they recall the story of Pharaoh who, in his hardness of heart, refused over and over again to let the people go. You may recall that Moses says, the Lord my God says, let my... Okay, now we're on the same page. Let my people go. And for nine plagues, Pharaoh does not relent. 
but on the Passover as these people gathered and they spread the blood of the lamb on their door. It was finally the breaking point for Pharaoh where he said, get out. And so the people would gather and they would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate God's deliverance over them. How many of you feel like there are things in your life where you need deliverance? This is a message for you. The second feast that they were required by law to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate is called the Feast of Weeks. And this is a celebration of God's provision. The Feast of Weeks began when the wheat harvest began. And so it was this time of of gathering and proclaiming that God is good, that God has given us the abundance of the land. And as the harvest comes in, that that the first fruits are uh, dedicated and given to him in sacrifice. And we get to celebrate this by, what do you know? Feasting again. There's also this element that that Jews began to believe that the first fruit of God in their life was actually the giving of the law to Moses. And so they celebrated that God had not just given them the, the provision of the land, but also given them the provision of the law. And the third feast is called the Feast of Booths. Now, I did a quick YouTube search, and this was mind-blowing to me because there are still Orthodox Jews in like New York City who build a booth on a tiny little balcony and they live in it during the Feast of Booths. And this was a a, a remembrance of God's faithfulness to them even as they were kind of a a transient people group in the desert. desert. They were following Moses through the desert and following the, the cloud and the fire. They were building these makeshift huts, and they were required to up and move quite often. And so this was a a time where they gathered, and they built these huts, and they slept in them as a reminder that God is faithful even when you're looking at your circumstances, and circumstances seem bleak. How many of you have faced circumstances that seem bleak? I think Psalm 123 is a message for you. Before we get into the psalm itself, I want to... Just paint a picture for you. You see, these three feasts are a time of pilgrimage. And I want you to imagine for a moment, maybe you live 60, 70, 80 miles from Jerusalem, and it's getting time for the Passover, and so there's preparations, there's packing, there's getting the kids ready. How many of you love a good vacation getting your kids ready? So it's coming together, and you're in this little small village, and so your neighbors are probably your family members or extended family, and you're all preparing together, and there's this buzz going on. And you finally hit the road. And as you go down your little road, it intersects a bigger road. And what would you know it? When you get there, there's more people. Maybe from a few towns over you haven't seen in a while, and there's some hugging and some high-fiving, some secret handshakes going on, like a welcome back, we're back together. And as you come together, it gets bigger and bigger, the roads get bigger, you're going up to Jerusalem and there's more and more and more people, and songs are being sung. S'mores are being roasted by the fire. I think they have to be unleavened graham crackers, but history is silent on this issue, so... There's stories of God's faithfulness and what God had done and maybe even what happened the year before, inside jokes and kids who can't wait to play together and there's this buzz and this energy and they're going up to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice before the Lord to celebrate together. How many of you enjoy a good celebration? Except there's a problem that history tells us 
And I, I think the best way that I can describe it is as the Psalms of Ascents are kind of the hymnal for what it means to travel up to Jerusalem, how many of you would say that there are songs in your life that you've liked before and then maybe you go through a traumatic time in your life and then that song comes on the radio and, and as the kids say, it just hits different. You know what I mean? It just takes on a new depth of meaning. Well, the Psalms of Ascents take on a new depth of meaning for the Israelites because it turns out that they're not always living in Jerusalem or in the villages outside Jerusalem. There's moments in time where they're taken captive to a place where they couldn't leave even if they wanted to, where they're forced to serve masters that they never wanted to serve in the first place, places like Babylon. And so they had to make a choice. The choice was, these psalms are meant for our pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So our choices are that we can just throw it out and hope that one day we'll get back to Jerusalem, or we can continue to faithfully read and sing them and allow them to shape us even as we're people in Babylon. So this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 123. It's just four verses. But after each verse, I want to look through the lens of two different lenses. I want to look through what does Psalm 123 mean for someone who's living in Jerusalem, where even though there might be some challenges in life and there might be some ways that life could be better, it's pretty good. We're going up, we're worshiping, we're excited, we're going to be together. What does this psalm mean in that situation? But also, what does this psalm mean when you can't even go up to do the celebration that you're called to? What does it mean when it feels like there's hopelessness and a dark cloud hanging over you? There's trauma and pain. There's wounds that don't seem to be healing. What does this psalm mean to people in that situation? And I think if you are a human like me, here's the reality of the situation. We carry all of those things at once, don't we? We carry celebration and expectation and joy. We can't wait to even get together on a Sunday morning and say, I'm going to worship God. I can't wait for God to meet me. I can't wait to see my friends. But I'm also carrying woundedness. Maybe it's a a broken relationship. Maybe it's financial hardship that doesn't seem to end. And you're thinking, man, I know that God is hope, but it is hard to find sometimes. I want to tell you that Psalm 123 is for you, and there is a message for everyone, because everyone here is human. So I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety, and then we'll kind of circle back and go verse by verse. It says this, verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master... As the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. I was reading this week and I ran across this quote that I think sums up my initial reaction of Psalm 123. You guys see how it ends, by the way? I was telling Danny before the service that I kept looking back, like, is there like one of those hidden verses? Do you have to order off the secret menu to get verse 5 where they like tie a bow and it seems like, oh, you know, there is some mourning and some loss and some cries for mercy, but God delivered. But there isn't. And Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Psalm 123, I think we have a quote. Psalm 123 is a brief song 
or rather it's a sigh of desperation when words fail and run dry. And I think here is some of the good news. I'll just tip my hand to you a little bit. Is that Psalm 123 is not the only song sung on the way to Jerusalem. There are others. And it's sandwiched in there in the midst of celebration and joy and provision and all of these things. And it's okay. The psalmist knows that there are people who are going to celebrate that are feeling like one, uh, Psalm 123 is describing. So let's look at verse 1 together. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. A couple weeks ago, uh, Danny was preaching uh, one of the Psalms, and it's a much more famous sort of version of this verse. It says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my hope come from? My hope comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So very good. You guys are listening. Fantastic. And I was thinking, oh, this is just a different way to say the exact same thing, but I, I, I begin to read and just kind of press into it and pray into it. And if we could put it back on the screen, I, I want to point something out to you. You see, in Psalm 123, the psalmist doesn't say, I lift my eyes up to the hills. It says that I lift up my eyes to you who are enthroned in the heavens. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you're looking around and you're thinking, there is nothing on this earth, there's nothing human that can get me out of the situation I am in? I think this is what the psalmist would say to you. I think the psalmist would say, look beyond even Jerusalem where Jews understood the very presence of God to dwell. Look beyond that to the place where God is sovereign, where God has absolute authority and rules on high over all things. I think the second thing that's important here is this, is that as we come to worship, as we go to celebrate in all the ways that we do that, that the psalmist invites us to recognize the position of God. I think there is a great temptation, especially in our culture and our world, when things get hard to turn inside and start to think, how can I take back control of my situation? Control of situations, and if we're honest, um, you're you're a control freak. It's true. You are, I am, we all are. At the core of control is a desire to direct our own path, to make it to our destination on our own. And I think the psalmist reminds us that that is not the way of the Christian. It's not the way of the God follower. It's to say, if I depend on my own strength, there is hopelessness, and I'm just left here crying out for mercy. And so the first thing we do is we look beyond ourselves, we look beyond the systems of the world, we look beyond uh, our financial situation, we look beyond our relationships, and we look directly to the throne of God and say, God... I don't always feel it, I don't always see it, but I recognize that you are on the throne. And so if you're taking notes, I have a couple uh, takeaways from verse 1. We can put the first one on the screen. I'd say, when everything seems right, you should remember who sits on the throne. Sometimes when things are going good, it's a temptation to step back and think like, man, I'm doing pretty awesome. Anybody ever, anybody in the, anybody want to just raise two hands up and say, I'm doing really awesome right now? Humble church, I like it. But I think there's a a temptation sometimes because we've been fed this story throughout our world over and over and over. And I say this every time I preach, we're also living at the epicenter of when they go to make reality TV shows, they name it after our place. You know that. 
And so the idea is if things are going good, we've lifted ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've made it happen all on our own. And yeah, God sprinkled in some of his favor from time to time. But really, if you boil it down, it's all about me. I think Psalm 123 is asking us to reconsider and say, even when things are going good, we have to remember that it's God on the throne and we do not get to sit on the throne. The second takeaway is for those who are feeling like, man, things are not going as well. And we can put that on the screen. Joel, I think if you do the background, the font will uh, be a little easier to read. Um, the second takeaway is this. When hope is hard to find, maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, I get that it's jubilee season and I, I get that there's celebration, but I'm having a hard time shaking off some of the weight of the world on me. When hope is hard to find, remember who sits on the throne. Everybody got it? R- remember who sits on the throne. Whether life seems to be going good and you're patting yourself on the back, remembering who sits on the throne is a little bit of a reality check to your pride. And when things are not going well, remembering who sits on the throne is saying, you know what, God is in control and I trust him. Verse 2 continues and it says this, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, As the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. I'll double down on that hallelujah. If verse 1 is an insistence on remembering God's position in your life, that he sits on the throne of your heart, not your job, not your spouse, not your kids, not your hope for the future, but God... Verse 2 is an insistence on your position. It says this, that we are servants. Not a lot of amens on that, huh? That we are servants of the master. It says that we look to his hand. To be attentive servants is a call to be observant to anticipate what the master might call, to recognize maybe the patterns of how the master has directed us or led us in the past and begin to see that he is calling us into something new. I was reading this week and um, the author of a commentary I was reading was saying there are, are four main ways that this illustration of the hand of the master is used in the Old Testament. And, and I just thought it was so brilliant I had to share it with you. It says this, But the first uh, way this illustration of the hand of the master is used is to uh, describe provision for the servants. That the hand of the master extends provision to those who serve him. I think of um, the story that we just studied this last Wednesday in our midweek Bible study. So shameless plug, you should come 6 to 7.30. We study the Bible together. But we were um, studying the feeding of the 5,000. And we, we talked about these moments in our lives where we look around and we think, where on earth is provision going to come from? It's not even like there's a pot of gold and God is distributed, and it's like there's nothing. And so we look in our own human wisdom and we say, we've got to dismiss everybody so they can go their separate way and go make it happen for themselves. But our master is one who is able to provide out of nothing. We describe it this way as sometimes we, we get in this idea that there is only a certain pie And we got to work really hard as humans to figure out how many slices we can get for ourselves. When God is in the business of saying, step back, I can make a bigger pie. 
the hand of the master is provision for the servants. The second is this. Sometimes this is hard to hear, but it's discipline for the servants. When you hear discipline, I don't want you to think consequences or punishment. I want, I want you to think that the master is faithful to give you the opportunities to be shaped and to be sanded and polished into the person you were created to be. We call them spiritual disciplines. They are not our consequences. They are not our punishment. They are our opportunities, our invitation to step into who God called us to be. And the way that we do it is every single day we put one foot in front of the other. We dedicate ourselves to God's word. We dedicate ourselves to prayer and communion with God and one another. We gather together and worship. Why do we do that? We do it to bring glory to God, but over time what happens is we begin to be the people God intended us to be. You ever uh, read the Bible? I had this happen um, recently. I read the Bible, that's what I'm trying to say. Recently I read it, it's cool. You ever have these moments, and I feel like this happens, this is how God works, you begin to read, maybe you read a book of the Bible, right? You read it, and you're like, wow, this is incredible, I've learned a lot, I feel like God's teaching me something. Then you go out into the world, and almost uh, immediately something from what you just learned comes right up. Maybe you've been learning about how to, how to uh, treat people with respect and dignity and hospitality, and then all of a sudden somebody needs hospitality. And it's almost like God is teeing up for you the opportunity. This is what the discipline of the master does. It prepares you to be the hands and feet in the world to reflect the God that we worship. The third way this illustration is used is the hand of the master gives direction to the servants. So often, we are people who just go about our lives because we're smart, intelligent, wise people. Some of you more so than others, definitely more so than me. And so we just sometimes are tempted to go about our lives and just do life. And every now and then, as Christians, we might turn to God's word, and I call this the condiment God, where we're like, well, I already got the main course, I created it myself, now I'm going to sprinkle some God on top and hope that something awesome happens. That is not the call of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, you are the servants, I am the master. God cares deeply about every part of your life, where you work, your relationships. He wants to give you insight and direction into everything. If you look to his hand, he will give you direction. He'll also spare you a lot of trouble when you go your own direction for a long time, won't he? A lot of murmuring and nodding. I think a lot of people have that experience, myself included. The fourth is... um, that the hand of the master offers affection to the servants. I love how God extends hands of affection. I was thinking this week of a moment in Jesus' life where according to the law that he grew up with, the law that is internalized as a Jewish boy, he knows full well that to touch a leper is to render yourself unclean. And instead of touching that leper and Jesus being pronounced unclean, what happens? Jesus reaches out the affection, the hand of the master. Before he even says a word, he puts his hand on the leper. And what happens? It's not the leper who makes Jesus unclean. It's Jesus who makes the leper clean. That is the extended hand of the master. So I think there's, uh, this is kind of the the takeaway of, of this idea of the hand of the master. 
is that even as these people, as the psalmist is writing, as we experience because we are humans and we experience the human condition, as we're waiting for something, it says uh, in the last chunk of verse 2, we can put it back on the screen, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. There is a clear goal that this psalm is written to. We are waiting. We are waiting. We want mercy. We're about to hear what that's all about. How many of you have just been looking to God? You're waiting. God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for something. All two of you. You guys should meet after church. You guys could create a support group. I think we could read this and we could say, oh, maybe what the psalm is trying to say is we're not moving. We're not doing anything until we get our mercy. But I don't think that's what the psalm is saying at all. I I think what it's saying is, we will be your faithful servants even while we wait. Even while we don't get it. Even while we don't understand all these things unfolding. Even when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We will be faithful servants. But listen, we're not going to split hairs here. We're waiting for mercy. We know what we desire. We know what our hearts long for. And we will serve you diligently, but we're still pursuing mercy. God have mercy. If you're taking notes, I have a couple takeaways we can put on the screen. The first is um, this. When we are worshiping freely, this is kind of the, the Jerusalem mindset. And we're in full celebration mode. We must remember that we are called to be servants, not people who say, serve us. I want to put this on the screen and leave it, and I just want to commend you. I don't know how long you've been here at Bridge, but I, I've been here a little over eight years. It's mind-blowing now. One of the first things I noticed was not how cool or attractive you are, although many of you are very cool and very attractive people. It wasn't how smart you are. You're welcome, Jim. Yeah. I was speaking to you. I just don't want to use your name in front of everyone. There are wise people here. There are intelligent people. There are wealth. It wasn't any of those things. You ready for the first thing I noticed? Everybody sticks around, and you guys clean everything up, like, so quickly. It's amazing. Have you noticed this about this church? There's like 7,000 chairs set up and 15 tents and all these tables, and you're looking at it like, oh my gosh, how is this ever going to get put away? Then you turn around in a conversation, you turn back around, and it's all gone. I, I want to commend you because I, I think what the scripture is calling us to is something that you have accepted as part of your calling. You are not people who say, you should serve us. You are servants. And you don't do it with the intent of, hey, look at me. Although some of you high schoolers were rubbing it in that you can carry six chairs at once. Um, <laughs> I'm not even going to try. You are people who serve not because it looks good and not because you get accolades around here. You're people who serve because you know the Lord and you're serving as though you're serving the Lord because you are. But there's also times when you feel like, man, I'm coming into a celebration, but I'm not really feeling it. And I I think the second takeaway, this is the Babylon mindset, says this. We are forced into a situation we don't want, and we didn't choose it for ourselves, We still have a choice to serve God. Sometimes we're forced into a situation where we feel like, I'm serving a master I didn't choose. Maybe it feels like uh, the master of a, a broken relationship that's hard to get out of, or maybe you're called not to get out of it. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a boss at work and you feel like, man, I'm just becoming a pawn in someone else's game. I'm just a means to someone else's end. I want to tell you, Sometimes in the human experience, we live through those situations. But we have a choice, even in the midst of that, to say, God is my master. 
He's the only one who sits on the throne. And although there are things in front of me that maybe I have to do, I will not proclaim any masters except for him. Verse 3 says this. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. So what my outline says. This is the section that literally is the psalmist just saying this. I've had enough. Anybody ever had enough? I got a four-year-old and an eight-month-old. I've had enough a lot lately. You know, there's only so many rounds of Jedi Navy SEAL rock climbers you can play until you've just had enough. (laughs) The psalmist is writing for relief. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. We've had enough of contempt. This word contempt in Hebrew means that you're basically being treated as subhuman. Like you're less than, that there are a group of people staring down their nose at you and they just see you as kind of, a, kind of like a, a less than kind of person, subhuman. Maybe someone who doesn't recognize that you're actually made in the image of the living God. And you're stuck in this situation, you can't get out of it. Somebody's using you as a pawn. You are, again, the means to someone else's ends. And you're calling out and you're saying, I've had enough. I think this is a, a tricky situation because we've got to remember that this, these words, find themselves in Psalm 123, which is right smack in the middle of the hymnal that you sing in celebration as you go to Jerusalem. Does that seem out of place to anyone? I'm not surprised that it does. Because I think that maybe more than we'd like to admit, we are shaped by a, a culture more than we are shaped by God's word. And part of the discipline that we were talking about is God's invitation to us to be more shaped by his word than the culture around us. Let me tell you what I mean. That initial feeling that I told you about when I read one, Psalm 123 and I was looking for where's Psalm 123 verse 5? Where's the fancy bow that ties off the end? You guys ever watch any movies before? Like any movie ever? Yeah. Introduce main character introduce love, introduce loss and hardship, and then how does every story end? Introduce the main character as the hero, and now what? Celebration, we win, right? And if we don't win, don't worry, there's always going to be a sequel, because you want to know why? Nobody is going to go watch a movie in our culture where you introduce main character, introduce issue and hardship, introduce his death, the end. Anybody ever notice that? Everything is tied off. Everything is a bow. I think that is why music is so powerful to us. I'm like Danny. I listen to both types. Sorry to steal your joke. I listen to country and I listen to Western. That was a good joke, by the way. I've used it a few times, and I credit him every time. Slowly over time, I'm going to stop crediting him, and then I'm going to take credit for it myself, probably, then. But that's why music is so powerful, because it gives us words. Even the cadence of singing a song gives us words to think we would never just say out loud. That's what Psalm 123 is. It's an invitation to say, you are gathering with people. There is buzz in the air. There is anticipation. But this year, you're heading up to Jerusalem with something heavy on you. And that's okay. 
You can bring it with you. And sometimes we're a little uncomfortable with you're allowed to bring that with you. But Jews are not uncomfortable with that at all. They literally wrote a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Have you heard of that? The whole thing is about lament. We don't preach a lot from it because it doesn't resonate really well with our culture. But you can bring your mourning, your grief, your call for mercy. You can bring it before God. And so if you're taking notes, here are kind of my takeaways from verse 3. The first is this. Celebration and despair can happen at the same time. This is not a both. Uh, this is a both and, not a either or. You're allowed to say, man, I'm going to church. I am so excited to see my friends. I am so excited to worship God. I'm so excited to get into his word and also be carrying a heavy weight that you feel like is dragging me down sometimes and it's heavy. You're allowed to bring them both and you're allowed to be in both of them. We're going to talk in a second here, but you don't have to leave it outside. You can bring it with you. You can be honest. You can be authentic. You can be transparent. There is safety here to take risks. Anybody notice that I just quoted all of our church values? They are our church values for a reason. The second is this. When you are lost for words, have mercy on me is enough. Sometimes we think like, man, I'm in this season of life. My worship stinks. God is probably so disappointed. Maybe you're picturing God like, is that all you got? That is not the God that we worship. The God that we worship looks in and knows your life intimately, and you say, God, like Charles Spurgeon said, I have nothing. I, I have a sigh. That's all I got. And God says, I welcome it because that's truly where you're at, and I accept it as your true act of worship. The psalm ends this way. It says, Our soul has had more Then enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. I don't know if it was on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, but I've taught this before. This word soul in the Old Testament is my favorite Hebrew word. It's this word nefesh. And it literally means your throat or your neck. And the idea of soul is everything required to make you an animated human being happens through your neck or your throat. The air that God breathed into humankind in Genesis resides in you as you breathe in and out. The water you drink and the food that you eat that sustains you goes in and out of your mouth. The words that you speak, speaking life into others, comes out of your throat. And so the the idea of soul is it's the essence of what makes you an animated human being. It's what makes you you. And the psalmist says this, the thing that makes us humans has had enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. Here's the image I think is being um, illustrated here. It's the idea of those people who are maybe uh, looking down upon you with contempt. They seem to be living large. They're at ease, it says. And you're thinking, I'm bearing the brunt of all of their decisions, and they seem to be thriving and doing just fine. The contempt of the proud has made them at ease, and here we are begging for mercy. God, step in. Give us relief. 
I think here's the good news, and this is where we'll kind of wrap up before we tie some bows on this morning's sermon. The first takeaway I have from you from verse 4 is this. We aren't asked to leave our burdens behind in our worship. God invites us to bring them and lay them at his feet. Those are two very different things. Let me, let me um, kind of illustrate this a bit for you. The idea is sometimes we feel like, man, Monday through Saturday, we deal with some stuff. You know what I mean? Amen. I got one amen. Yeah. Work and family and relationships and finances and all of these things, they swirl around. We're just carrying it, and it feels like yuck. Anybody? Like, you used to feel that way, right? Like, not right now, but you used to. Is that easier language for you to say? Like, yeah, I used to. We carry all this stuff with us. And if we're not careful, we might fall prey into this mindset of like, you know what, that's my Monday through Saturday baggage. It's like a rope that's tied to my ankle. I'm just like carrying it around all the time. But today's Sunday. So I'm going to wake up powder my face, because people still powder their face in 2023. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) I'm going to button up a shirt. I'm going to dress nice. I'm going to have an extra cup of coffee, and I'm going to be peppy at church. I'm going to leave the burden behind. I'm going to come into worship. That is not God's invitation to you. God's invitation is, bring that heavy thing, But don't carry it for too long because I want you to leave it before me. That's what worship is. It's the honest, authentic God. This is what I'm going through. Sometimes I don't even have words to fully express it. Sometimes it just comes out as a whisper. I don't even know what to pray, but here it is. Here it is. Jesus says, I think in Matthew chapter 11, that you can take his burden upon you. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's not that God just removes all responsibility off your shoulders. It's that what he gives you is you're able to bear under your own weight. It no longer crushes you. The second takeaway is this, that sometimes if all you can truly muster is a sigh or a whimper for mercy, God accepts that as your worship. If that's truly where your heart is at. This is not an invitation just to wallow in listening to so much George Jones that you just are depressed all the time. Because that will happen. I've been there before. It is the real human reaction to real human life because real human stuff happens to us. And at the same time, we're celebrating things and we're seeing brothers and sisters and we're celebrating them and we're genuinely excited. We're also carrying heavy things that weigh us down. And God says, bring it. Bring it all. Lay it before me and I accept it as your worship. This is not God. God is the father and the prodigal son. God is the Jesus who touches the leper. God is the Jesus who bends down and writes in the sand and says, okay, let's follow the law, but if you want to stone her, the person who throws the first stone has to be the one who's never sinned before. Oh, he's saying something a little different. This is the God that we worship. So I... I want to try to go out on a limb a little bit this morning as a time of response. I, I, felt like, I felt like God was just very heavy with me this morning. and I, I felt like this was uh, something that God desired. I want to invite the, um, the worship team up this morning. 
here's what I'd like us to do as we wrap up our service. They're going to um, just lightly play some instrumental music just to start. And here's my invitation. I want you just to sit where you're at. Maybe close your eyes. I want to invite you to breathe. I want to invite you to take space just to think. I want you to feel free to pray. And I invite you to pray with honesty. Maybe some of you already do, but maybe some of you are thinking, you know what, I think I can be really honest before God. And I want to ask that you just, in your own way, in your own space, that you give your burdens to the Lord. Name them. Maybe it's not fancy. Maybe it's, God, I, it's my marriage. I, I don't have words, but you know. I want to invite you to take a few minutes just to lay those things before the Lord. And then when you feel like you've laid those before the Lord, I want to just invite you to stand and worship with our team. And as you maybe look around, I pray that as we stand together, we recognize that even as we lay these things before the Lord, we stand together. We stand in unity. We stand in celebration, not because everything in life is good, but we stand because God is good. We don't stand because we're sitting on the throne of our life and our life is awesome. We stand and we worship in unity with our brothers and our sisters because God is on the throne. And and the feeling of whether that's real or not is sort of irrelevant to the point that God is on the throne. So I want to invite you to take a a moment. And when you're ready and you feel like your burden has been unloaded, I, I want to invite you to stand. And then I'll come back up and wrap us up when we're done. Please lead us.
come to me, all who are lab- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before we wrap up, I just want to tell you, you know, sometimes we we feel like there's another step. Like I'm willing to lay things at the feet of Jesus in my prayer, but maybe you're feeling like God is prompting you to, to more. And I want to invite you not to be afraid. As we wrap up, I want to tell you, there are people, and every week we say this, there's people who would like to pray for you. You can come up front and people will pray for you. But coming up front and praying is not like, oh, the things I'm going through just don't seem as heavy as the people who go up there, or I'm not as emotional as maybe some of the people who go up. That's not the point at all. The point is physically taking a step outside of your comfort zone and saying, you know what, I'm going to be bold in asking someone else to pray, or maybe it's just to listen. But I'm going to come and I'm going to say, God, I trust you if you're prompting me to do that, that you're faithful to me. And so I want to invite you, I want to pray over us. One of the things we like to do here as we wrap up, if you're able, is just to put your hands out. It's not anything ritualistic or weird. It's just to say... God, whatever you have for me to take out of here, here are my empty hands, and I want to take it with me as I go. And I want to pray over you, and I want to invite you, if you need prayer for anything, to to come forward. God, thank you. Thank you for Sundays. Thank you that built into our weekly rhythm and our weekly routine, we have this place to come to. And God, for some of the ways that maybe we've been guilty of leaving our burdens behind and and convincing ourselves that we don't want to trouble you or bother you, we repent of that. And we say this morning that you are faithful, that you are good. God, sometimes we have so many words to proclaim it and describe it, and sometimes all we have is just a whimper that says you are good. And so, God, whatever has been sitting on the throne of our hearts this week, we just ask that you would help us boot out anything that's not you. We honor you. We glorify you. We ask that you would continue to shape us and direct us, that we would be people who walk out hope, that walk out light, that walk out truth, integrity, that we would reflect the God that we worship to the places that we go, to our work, our our homes, and our relationships, our schools, wherever we go, God, we want to be lights in a dark world that desperately needs it. So we love you. We come before you, and we ask that you would just remind us every day that we don't have to wait till next Sunday to lay our burdens down, that you are present in bedrooms, you're present in the shower, or you're present everywhere, that we can just turn to you and say, God, this is what I got. This is my true act of worship, and you are faithful. So God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the the people you are shaping us to be. We love you, and we ask that you would go before us into the week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. You are dismissed.
So love me and hate me I'm not going anywhere Leave me or take me You still better